Rising interest rates have exposed various risks in the financial markets, not least of which is the recent banking crisis in the US and Europe. The biggest banking failure since the 2008 global financial crisis shook financial markets in March 2023 after a number of bank failures in the US, including Silicon Valley Bank. That crisis jumped the water to Credit Suisse in Europe, which was taken over by UBS. What happened at these banks is not surprising given the increasing interest rate environment. Higher rate cycles have a habit of exposing weaknesses in business models and risk management practices, of which Silicon Valley Bank is a good example. To explore this in greater depth, we're joined by Adrian Pask, Chief Investment Officer at PSG Wealth. Hi, Adrian. Good to speak to you again. It's been quite a turbulent time for the banking sector. I just spoke about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, but there have been a few others. Explain how this crisis in banking is linked to rising interest rates and what impact has this had on the investment landscape? Hi, Kieran. Thank you very much for having me and and also to the listeners uh, for dialing in. The last time that we saw interest rates increase this quickly in the U.S. was during the late 1970s, and we've discussed this on occasion before, but I think it's really important to to put this in, in some quantitative measure so that we can see exactly what the impact is. So if you think in practical um, terms, if you were to take out a, a million-dollar loan, so it's a, it's a big number, but just to make the, the example a, a little bit simpler, and you had to repay that loan over 10 years, that would essentially mean that you would have to pay back the principal on that loan in 10 payments of 100,000 rand each, which is not really the problem. The problem is the interest rate component. So the interest that you would pay last year um, before all the interest rate started to move up was 0.25%, which was $2,500 essentially per annum is what that loan would have cost you in interest expense. Now, that interest expense has now gone from 0.25% to 5%. So it's it's essentially grown 20 times over. And all of a sudden, your interest payment alone, uh, uh, that's over and above the principal payment of 100,000, is now 50,000 US. So that is money that is currently operational in the economy, being spent by the businesses, being spent by consumers, whoever is on the other side of the loan. And that money is now effectively being pulled out of the economy. So it's a drastic change, and, and I think there's many habits that, that settle in in looser economic conditions, and then many of those habits need to be unlearned through a period where there's interest rate hikes. And this applies to both consumers and businesses. So in the banking context, what this meant is that essentially when you go through very loose monetary policy, just getting a loan is a lot easier for, for, for bankers. So uh, applying for a loan... Generally, the requirements through the banks are are very accommodative. They don't have very strenuous requirements in order to approve a loan because the economic conditions are favorable. They've got faith in people's ability to repay the money. And at the same time, from an affordability perspective, people are essentially overextending themselves in that period because all of a sudden you can afford a bigger house or a better car or whatever you, you want to finance. But the minute that interest rates go up to the extent that, that I've just explained, then obviously you run into into trouble because all of a sudden the previously good client that would very easily be able to manage his expenses is now in a, in a situation where he can't re- repay his debts um, potentially. Um, and even if he could, um, there's definitely no additional loan or new business going going through. At the same time, the bank now sits with this 
loan on, on the books and needs to make provisions for tougher conditions. And it's adjusting its own models to to say that we're going to be a little bit tougher on lenders and not grant so many loans because we know conditions are tough. And that's where the volumes start to start to crunch as well. So how many new clients actually come in? In SVB's case, uh, they had an additional problem because ultimately the way that the banks make money is by taking those deposits that, that come in from people that want to actually earn interest on that. And they essentially either lent it out to people who needed the money, who can now no longer afford to repay it, or if they don't extend those loans because of the tougher conditions, they themselves need to reinvest it for some type of investment income. And this is largely what happened in SVB's case, because then they reinvested it on the long end of the curve, which is essentially the area that got beaten down during last year's bond market crunch which means that they sit with negative equity there. So there's multiple complicated factors actually at play um, in terms of how that risk is introduced into the market. I mean, a lot of people will remember the 2008 uh, banking crisis. Now, a little more than a decade later, we have another one. And this did start in the U.S. So what were the issues there specifically and the impact on the South African banking sector? Well, I think there's there's actually a bit of interesting history there. And... and, um, it seems like these days we can't get away from talking markets without also talking politics. But and, and that would extend into the US example as well. So if we go to, to 2008, following the global financial crisis, they implemented new banking regulations that were tougher on banks, essentially ensuring that they are much better capitalized. Obviously, that puts a crunch on the amount of business that banks can do. Um, because not everybody would qualify according to those loans or they would have to carry a lot more capital on their balance sheet to ensure that they're safe and liquid. Um, and then um, that was that regulation really passed through under Obama. But what happened when Trump came in, he was very much trying to be more pro, loosening things up, uh, ease of business, getting rid of, of regulation that didn't seem to make sense at the time. And part of that regulation also affected the banks, and, and that was the Dodd-Frank Act. And what happened there essentially is to allow some of the smaller to medium-tier banks to not comply with stress test requirements. So, so essentially, the, the allegation that's quite interesting now is that um, Democrats are saying, you know, if those regulations weren't rolled back, we would have picked up SVB. So it's so quite a bit of in- interesting history there. But, I mean, it's very much a, a, a U.S. case. But if we look at our South African banks, they remain exceptionally well capitalized. They've been preparing for tough conditions for a very, very long time. If you think of how they navigated through COVID, it was actually excellent. Even through the GFC, our banks were in a much better position than some of the U.S. counterparts. And some of the risks that we experienced through GFC also related to interbanking um, type of risk. So, so banks lending to one another. That's how the, the contagion takes place. In the South African case, we don't have many touch points with the tiers of banks into that environment. And we insulated from that. So I don't think that there, there's a, a big risk for, for SA banks from that perspective. I think the issue that our banks face is more directly correlated to our economic conditions and challenges that we face locally. There's been a a lot of discussion this year on the macro level about the possibility of a recession in the U.S., and of course that would mean probably worldwide as well. So what should investors expect if this recession does materialize? 
Yeah, I think it's very likely that we will see a recession. So um, we've also previously spoke about the yield curve, and I think that's a familiar topic for, for many by now. Um, and as a leading indicator, it has a very good track record of predicting a recession. And typically, it states just if the yield curve is inverted, in other words, the short rates are higher than the long rates, uh, typically, you can expect a, a recession. And what we're currently seeing is an inversion of the yield curve, the biggest one in 43 years. So statistically, it's very, very likely that we'll see that recession comes through. And the unfortunate thing at this point in time is as, as long as what inflation remains higher, we can see this coming down, but it remains very much elevated. And at the same time, the fiscal situation in the US is not great. There isn't really a lot of room to support the economy through either monetary or fiscal stimulus. So that introduces a, a very complicated situation. But I think what we can expect to see in the US economy is obviously by definition negative growth. Um, the, the silver lining, however, is, is slowing inflation because there's less uh, demand and there's less pressure on, on prices. But that will be in insulated areas. So largely the things that are driven by consumer demand, for example, wages will take time to filter through the economy as well. And some of the other things that are more commodity driven, for example, might be stickier. So we saw with our own numbers that came out, food inflation, for example, it's a stickier component. You can't really decide that you want to eat less, although they say sometimes you should, but, <laughs> you know, so um, if you think about demand for food, it's fairly sticky and um, people need to live. So that component is a lot stickier. The other part of it is obviously higher unemployment, especially for where the U.S. now is essentially where it makes me think of our discussions on, on bond rates, where bond rates were so low, we said they can actually only go up from here, and they did. And the same can be said for employment numbers at the moment. I mean, they essentially at full employment. We should expect higher unemployment going forward, and, and that will put pressure on wages. And again, that, that will support slowing inflation. The context that, just the, the psychological context, is obviously that whole scenario is very poor for business sentiment, which is terrible for investment. And it's also poor for consumer sentiment, and therefore we'll see accelerated, uh, hampered uh, spending. And then maybe the last thing that I think we should expect to see is bankruptcy. So we've seen a strong correlation between interest rates and bankruptcies in, in the U.S. Um, over, over historic periods. And bankruptcies are very, very low in line with the lower interest rates that we saw last year. But affordability of debt is going to become a problem. And, and I think many businesses who have adopted that looser spending, freer spending, less disciplined approach could be caught by this higher interest rate environment and, and we could see bankruptcies tick up. But I think in terms of what, what markets um, tend to expect during that period, I think markets have probably already to start to think about the recession. In, in likelihood, there's already priced in a, a softer recession. So if you think what markets are likely to do when U.S. growth is going to stifle, um, you'll typically see commodities struggle because the argument is that um, there's no growth. Without U.S. growth, we struggle a lot. The only party that can typically buck the trend would be China. So we do see elements of that. But U.S. assets typically do well because people take a flight-to-safety approach. They invest in gold and U.S. treasuries. Um, and, and emerging markets tend to suffer. And we've seen all of those things over the last 12 months. But that's where we are now. I think we need to think a little bit of where we, we're heading after that recession because we think that the recession later this year is likely to coincide with peak rates. 
So the market will start to think ahead again for, for after that recession period and try to find opportunities. And then that is my next question. Uh, my final question actually is where are the opportunities given the scenario that you've just been explaining? Yeah, I think it's a case of finding opportunity in, in the recession itself is broadly speaking an opportunity for investors. So obviously, it's tough to live through. But it does typically lead to cheaper asset prices and, and typically good entry levels because we know that the, the recession will come and go. And that's what gives the, the market its cyclicality. So if markets are cyclically down, there should be opportunities as that tide went out. You maybe we can't look at the, the U.S. example just yet, maybe slightly premature. But if we think about you know some isolated cases in Europe last year, especially with the war coming to fall, Something like uh, like a, a BMW was a, a good investment for us because it was just priced in so excessively. The outlook for Europe was absolutely terrible. So there you have to to, to consider how much is in the price and, and whether they still um, you know whether it's going to materialize as as poorly as what the market is pricing in or whether there's potentially an opportunity there. And and also I would ask where are assets bound to get cheaper than what they are. Um, at the moment, and I think uh, a, an example closer to home would be SA Financial. So we can expect in a backdrop where people are questioning global growth, uh, typically the more cyclical things don't do well, so so like financials. Um, but at the same time, they are cheap, they are well capitalized, and recession fears will pass. So maybe a, a, a good entry point there. Um, and I think also commodities more generally and emerging markets. So again, the areas that are currently out of favor because of this recession fear, eventually, as, as I say, as that fear passes, um, those opportunities tend to unlock. So I think there's actually a broad spectrum of assets out there that are already cheap. Um, they might get a little bit cheaper, but thinking a little bit more long term are actually offering investors with a, a good entry point. Adrian Pask, Chief Investment Officer at PSG Wealth. We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, Adrian. Thank you, Kieran. I appreciate it.